The Times 10.01 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. And before we go to Democracy Forum, which is coming up next with host Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters, we want to encourage you to go to your phone and call 1-800-643-6273. Do it now so you don't miss a minute of the show. Again, 1-800-643-6273. Make a donation in any amount and become a member and supporter of your community radio station, as Linda from MDI did. She called in for Democracy Forum, Information and Public Affairs here on WERU. Her name's going in the watering can along with anyone else who calls in during this program. For a drawing, we'll be having right about 5 o'clock tonight for an autographed copy of Amy Goodman's newest book, uh, Democracy Now! 20 Years Covering the Movements Changing America. So if you want to get into the watering can for that drawing that's going to be happening tonight at about 5 o'clock, call one 800 643 Now we are going to go to Ann Luther and Democracy Forum. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the fourth program in our series this election year to be broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is titled, Us Versus Them, Is Democracy the Enemy? Or is government the enemy? Let me do that again. Us versus them. Is government the enemy? We'll discuss the history and cultural origins of American attitudes toward government, how these attitudes have evolved over time, and whether attitudes have been purposely amplified by vested interests. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum, and let me introduce our guests. Joining us in the studio today is Amy Freed. We were just talking. Amy has been on our show each of the four seasons that we've done going back to 2004. Amy is a professor of political science at the University of Maine. Among other things, she authors the must-read blog Pollways at the Bangor Daily News. Professor Freed's research focuses on the history and political uses of public opinion in the United States, as well as political ideas and activism. She is the acclaimed author of numerous books and articles. Her most recent book is Pathways to Polling, Crisis, uh, Cooperation, and the Making of Public Opinion Profession. And she's currently working on a book on the strategic promotion of distrust in the United States. Welcome this morning, Amy. It's great to be here, Anne. Joining us by telephone is Colin Woodard. Colin is an award-winning author and journalist. He is currently state and national affairs writer for the Portland Press-Herald Maine Sunday Telegram and a contributing editor at Politico. He was recently honored as a Pulitzer Prize finalist for his six-part series, Mayday, Gulf of Maine in Distress, which ran in the Portland Press-Herald last October. His most recent book is American Character, a history of the epic struggle between individual liberty and the common good, published by Viking in March of 2016. Welcome, Colin. Pleasure to be here. So glad to have you. So let's start with this quote from Ronald Reagan in August 1986. Quote, The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, close quote. By the time Reagan was elected 
trust in government had fallen from over 70% at the start of the Johnson administration in the early 60s to just 28% in 1980, precipitous fall. This is according to the Pew Research Center. Since then, through some ups and downs, it has fallen even further, down to under 20% today. Fewer than 20% of the American people trust their government. It was 70% during the Eisenhower administration. So just Two, in just two generations, that ratio has almost exactly reversed. Colin, let me put it to you first. When did government become the enemy? Has this sentiment been part of our political culture from the beginning? Uh, yes. I mean, the concern about government has ebbed and flowed, but it is certainly part of our tradition inherited uh, at the beginning of our colonial experiments and coming to us through the great Anglo, you know, the English philosophers, uh, people like John Locke, who were um, concerned and fighting a, a sort of ideological battle against uh, the sort of divine right of kings and the implications of that, and trying to create a new philosophical tradition to justify individual rights and individual property against a all-powerful monarch who, you know, is, of course, a central government. And so we received that uh, in our early political traditions and that concern, which has always been uh, a part of American political culture. But that the, the depth of that concern and the distrust in government and the, um, uh, the level to which people are animated that government is, is, uh, is becoming tyrannical has definitely ebbed and flowed through our history. Is there, has there been a sense during that time, Colin, that government was our friend or government is us? I mean, we are a democracy after all, and the people who serve in government are public servants after all. I mean, is that a countervailing attitude? Uh, you won't be surprised that uh, there are, that I, I would argue, there are strong regional differences in those assumptions that government is us or that government is a potentially tyrannical force. But yes, there have been times in our history in aggregate when there's been broad trust in the government, um, especially when there are external threats, the period of World War II, the sense that everyone was in it together, that uh, government, in order to fight a two-front war against uh, a fascism and imperialism was uh, was uh, guiding the economy and uh, and um, and uh, and uh, working with uh, corporations to churn out the aircraft and the ships and everything that we needed, and rationing basic supplies and uh, you know everyone was marshaled together for this great project. And to some degree, during the the uh, Cold War period, that was also true when we were up against uh, the Soviet Union and it seemed as though there could actually be a nuclear war or a World War Three and that everyone was mobilized in order to have our country, you know, stand up and, and win in that great, you know, good versus evil fight that, uh, that we were in the grips of uh, very actively through the 50s and early 60s, which required that we, you know, win the space race, that we have the most educated population, that we devote resources to have a, a highway system to move things around and stitch us together, that we, uh, federal government, make enormous investments in basic scientific research and creating university departments and high school chemistry labs and all that. It was this notion of a, a shared enterprise uh, that we were all in it together and a general trust in, in government to, to lead us and, you know, the, at the free world, as it was thought, in this great struggle against the Soviet threat. So, Amy, yeah, what do you want? Times where that's been true. What, what do you want to add to that, Amy? And what do you feel has changed since the end of the Johnson administration to cause trust in government to plummet so far so fast? 
Well, I mean, there are a number of different things, but you know, one thing that I would I would add to to Colin's account, which uh, you know, he certainly has his finger on the reality that there's a long strain of distrust in government through all of American political history, uh, is that this whole time during World War II that he mentioned when there was you know high trust um, and you know strong common commitments, is that there was a lot of effort by the federal government and also working with uh, private organizations to try to promote that sensibility. I mean, some of it you could, you know, imagine comes just, you know, automatically out of feeling under siege and uh, having people off at war and, you know, having been attacked as in, as in Pearl Harbor. But there also were, you know, a lot of efforts to develop and promote trust in government. There were bureaus that were part of the federal government that, that worked on trying to uh, keep people um, at high levels of morale and that were very interested in particular populations that they were concerned might not have as much morale. Um, I've written a little bit about a project in what was called Negro morale, where there was a lot of fear that black people, because they uh, lacked access to basic rights and had uh, poor treatment, were had, had certain you know, projects and programs kind of aimed towards them to try to bring them in and keep them in. Of course, there were all the, the other efforts by the federal government on things like rationing. Um, so just as it takes work in some ways to create trust, it also takes work to some extent to promote distrust. And that is really, you know, what my recent research has been about uh, are the efforts by conservative movement organizations and and such to try to promote distrust in government because it serves some particular purposes for them. Well, and I mean, clearly, and Cullen has just had an article published this last week that talked about possible overreach in government, and certainly there are plenty of reasons why citizens may want to be vigilant um, against government overstep. So there are reasons for skepticism too, right, Colin? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, the, maintaining a liberal democracy, meaning you know the, where you're aspiring to have hopefully universal individual human freedom, that's a really difficult undertaking and something our species hasn't been doing that long, and it requires balancing those forces, balancing um, – a government that is strong enough to enforce laws and uh, keep a potential private power and oligarchs in check, but not big enough to become an oppressive force itself, which uh, governments have become throughout history from, you know, the ancient Maya through the Soviet Union. So it's, it's the reason it's so difficult maintaining a liberal democracy and achieving that, that, that maximum potential of individual freedom is that you have to balance those forces and balance them at a 50-yard line amid changing circumstances. Do you think so, the balance yes, is tipped? both are important. <laughs> Do you think the balance is tipped, Amy? I see you nodding over there. Yeah, I, I, I certainly would. 
uh, say that, at least, you know, when it comes to certain people, certain populations. I mean, the, the, there's a difference between skepticism and just cynicism and a kind of cynicism that sees, you know, c cuts to the point that there's there's no reason to be involved to try to, to make any kind of change. I mean, one thing I see even going back to how we talk about the founding a lot of times is certainly there was distrust in government and, and for good reason, but then they went ahead and created a government with the Constitution that was stronger than the government they had initially created under the Articles of Confederation. You know, they they had created a much stronger executive in that. They created a much stronger judiciary than the Articles had, uh, which was basically missing, and a, certainly a stronger national government. Uh, so, you know, they... Uh, reached a kind of balance at, at that time through our institutions. I have a lot of fear that there are a lot of people who don't seem to understand uh, that well, the, the way that institutions function, and then when they see certain problems, they have uh, kind of false expectations about about how things really could have happened. You know, like the, the amount of... Uh, of change that can occur in any particular time. Um, and you see this really, you know, whether from the left or the right. Uh, the, uh, a bit, I'm very much looking forward to reading Colin's uh, book, uh, but one book that I've been just finishing up is by E.J. Dion called Why the Right Went Wrong. And one of his big arguments is that you just had this incredible rise in expectations about what government could accomplish and what they could, the conservative movement could accomplish um, in, in blocking Obama, say, and, you know, perhaps overturning Obamacare. And it was never realistic. And then you get incredible anger at the establishment. You see that with, you know, uh, the support of Donald Trump. And, and it's not as if this is just on the right, that kind of very, very high level of expectation. I think if people were more grounded in the realities of how government works, checks and balances, separation of powers, all these things we learned about in fourth grade, but having a more sophisticated understanding of it, that that, that perhaps wouldn't happen. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters. Our topic today is Us Versus Them. Is government the enemy? Our guests this morning are Colin Woodard, award-winning author and journalist, and Amy Freed, professor of political science at the University of Maine. Um, I, you know, I'm looking at the graph in that Pew chart that goes back to, you know, the beginning of the Johnson administration and then sort of fell through um, what I remember, this is my generation, as the Watergate era in Vietnam, and then Reagan came in, and that curve about trusting government has just never been able to recover Colin, what do you think has been happening in the last well, two generations? You've identified a, a, a major sea change moment was during the Johnson administration. Sort of 1964 was perhaps the height of the trust in government and the idea that the, you know, the best and brightest of Kennedy's administration uh, were in Johnson's administration, and you had technocrats and experts who could get us to the moon and defeat the Soviet Union. And indeed, we're suddenly under Johnson promising to uh, improve society and, and eliminate ignorance and have a war, a successful war that would eliminate poverty to take us from being just an affluent society, but to be a great society. And that government could do all these things. Uh, some is suddenly out of the blue after Kennedy's assassination. Johnson was promising that we were about to and sort of launched into it. And it was, it was promising things 
that uh, the Johnson administration actually wasn't resourced or, or um, had the human resources to do and probably didn't even have the technical and technocratic knowledge to do. And the failure of those things, the failure of those promises, um, was enormously destructive in people's, in the public's confidence in the government's ability to do those things. And the most catastrophic events were, of course, our deepening involvement in the Vietnam. The government had promised we know how to how to defeat poverty and the Viet Cong, and it turned out to be wrong on both accounts um, because they misunderstood the you know the fundamentally what the Vietnam War was about, and they un- misunderstood how to fix you know poverty. Now, they, remember, there were these solutions where the, the technocrats in Washington would come to your blighted neighborhood and would fix it in quotes by bulldozing your entire neighborhood and building these beautiful you know gigantic concrete housing towers. Everything will be great now, and of course, it absolutely wasn't. And it was those failures and the the the, um, the anger and upset, which came in the form of uh, civil unrest in cities, and uh, the anti-war movement was very corrosive on the government even before Nixon and Watergate and the sort of lawlessness and break-ins and and moments of constitutional crisis really um, um, drove confidence in government to the point where. You know, when, they, when I was a little kid in the early 70s and first becoming conscious of the world around us, it was a world in which, you know, Americans believed that they, the country could not accomplish anything. There were gas lines and, you know, the, we were going to run out of food. <laughs> you know, the, the cities were falling apart. There was this level of pessimism that was just staggering at that time. And with it had fallen a confidence both in government and sort of in America's ability to do things that we've only partially recovered from the latter. Well, and then there are both probably principled and vested interests who believe in small government and for whom populist antipathy and, well, you know what I mean, populist antipathy towards government is conducive to their aims. Um, so how did that play into this Reagan and post-Reagan period, Colin? Well, there was, it's always been a strong movement that is believes that the route to freedom uh, is in empowering the individual and having the government be as weak as possible. I mean, I would argue against that because I think you have to have balance because it's not really a bilateral struggle between a tyrannical government and a free people. It's a trilateral one where you get you can have an oligarchy form if there's not a, a powerful enough government to keep them in check. But those who strongly believe that freedom is best defined as maximum individual autonomy, um, they've long argued to try to have a sort of laissez-faire environment where you return to the, the, the golden age before the progressives in the 1880s and 1890s when the federal government was weak, regulation was, uh, was extremely limited, uh, social welfare programs were limited, and you had a, a much more um, um, free environment and free market environment, in quotes. And that movement never went away. It was frustrated by the progressives. It was um, furious and disheartened by uh, FDR and the New Deal after the Great Depression. But there was always this, this what became known as movement, conservative movement from the Tafties in the 1950s um, all the way through that uh, had been trying to um, roll back the New Deal and return things to what they saw as, a real, as the American pathway to freedom. And yes, they were... They, they, ended up playing a very long game that Amy perhaps can describe some as well, where they were building networks of institutions and think tanks and, uh, and, uh, and developing intellectuals and ideas to try to further this, a long game that took decades and ultimately had its opening 
after Watergate, really. I mean, the, the, the New Deal consensus about the role of government and that shared enterprise was falling apart after 1964. But there was this long period where it was not clear what would take its place. It really doesn't end until, until the arrival of Reagan in 1980. I, and that movement, that, conser- that movement conservatives from that particular uh, laissez-faire ideological framework um, were indeed, yes, critical to that, uh, the success of that, and that that would be the direction the country would go once the New Deal order had been, uh, in coalition, had been collapsed. Talk about that, Amy. I see you shaking your head about the infrastructure that built up to promote a small government regime. Uh, yeah, I think people are learning more and more about this uh, with, um, you know, uh, uh, research on um, on um, particular um, whether in, in all kinds of different areas. I mean, there's some research on this in the legal community. There's a great book by a uh, political scientist named Stephen Tellis about the development of the conservative uh, legal movement. And then uh, journalist Jane Mayer's book on uh, called Dark Money talks a lot about um, the role of the Koch brothers and every and other you know really deep pocket uh, donors in really investing in ideas and in institutions and you know trying to promote trying to promote um, uh, very small government kinds of uh, kinds of perspectives. Um, and you know, then then a lot of those those groups and individuals then turn more to mass politics and funding of, you know, so you see that was for example with the funding of some Tea Party organizations, um, you know, and you know, the argument that I I would make here is that you know, on the one hand, you have to put it in kind of economic terms, supply and demand. So you know, you have all this work that's being put into trying to promote distrust of government and building all these institutions. But there has to be, you know, some public view where that is receptive, uh, that people are receptive to that. So there's a kind of interaction there. Um, I think one of the conditions, if we go back to this period in the 1960s, that's important. And I, I, I don't really disagree with what, uh, how, how Colin described the time. But I would also add that this is also a time, if you look at 1964, 1965, where there's immense uh, kinds of change in terms of policy change uh, on things that we that I think most people look back on quite positively. I mean, Johnson passes Medicare and Medicaid. He passes the Voting Rights and the Civil Rights Acts. And those are just incredibly important kinds of policies. If not for the other things that happen, you know, he would be seen as, you know, really a remarkable president in, in achieving those sorts of things. But one of the things... Can I interject also that um, Nixon, who in a sense was the last president to govern in the New Deal tradition, even though the coalition was fracturing, also created the Clean Air and Clean Water Act in mm-hmm. Russia and the, and the sure. Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So it, it did carry through quite the, a bit. Yeah, the EPA. I mean, you have, but you know, one of the things that comes out of this whole period with civil rights as being really important are, is a big impact. When, when, you know, on on the configuration of the political parties, um, and race is an incredibly important part of that. I mean, there's a famous story about Johnson saying that after he signed the Civil Rights Act, the he was giving up the uh, the South for the Democratic Party for a generation. Well, it turned out to be more than for a generation. 
you have uh, Nixon running with what was called the Southern Strategy, which uh, uh, appealed to Southern voters who were then highly Democratic. It was, you know, solidly Democratic area and got this movement of uh, people out of the Democratic Party into the into the Republican Party. And some of it was civil rights, but some of it was also the kinds of things about like these domestic policies focused on 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 poverty, where the government is seen as uh, benefiting uh, low income people, certainly, but uh, black people and brown people. Um, and there's and there's some backlash to that. Uh, so, you know, the question is always who benefits from particular programs. Well, and that, that's the question that's coming to me as I listen to you both talk. It's who benefits, which vested interests benefit from small government and have those in, interests that benefit from small government deployed a strategy to harness popular sentiment in the service of actually realizing small government um, Colin, do you want to take a stab at that? Uh, who has the interest in having a small government? Yeah, who who benefits from having a small government, and have they systematically gone about trying to bring people who might think like them into the democratic process for the purpose of getting small government? Well, very broadly speaking, if you're an enormously wealthy person, you're, you're you know the tax policies of the Eisenhower administration, for instance, when we were fighting the Cold War, I think the top tax bracket for people making the, the, the maximum amount and above was something like 91%. <laughs> and I think it's down in the low 30s today. But things like that, you know, you're, you're, it is hitting your pocketbook directly. Or indeed, the income tax itself was, uh, there was a lot of animus against because before the in- personal income tax existed in the late 19th century and early 20th century, that's when, you know, the, the, the wealth of private individuals was so staggering that they were building those great big rusticator mansions in places like Bar Harbor and Newport. It's after the arrival of the income tax and all of those things that uh, suddenly those households uh, go into disrepair or sold and people are no longer hiring you know, 75 servants. There's a big change for the, the sort of Gilded Age plutocracy that earlier in this century, when those people were still alive and around, they were very frustrated by that change. So I think some of it was that the, that era when they remembered a time when um, much less of their money was going to the public coffers, and they wanted a, a time where you could return to that. And if you had been involved in the in the Gilded Age and in the Roaring Twenties and and uh, businesses that relied on monopolistic practices and and not being regulated for competition and stuff, you didn't want to uh, suddenly have the government nosing in and and uh, preventing, you know, mergers and trusts. So, yeah, there's some, there's some obvious um, interests that uh, are compromised if you have uh, a, a more progressive tax system at work, if you're um, um, diverting more resources to uh, common projects like highways and, and the military and, and the like. And, uh, and so, yes, there was animus and, and personal stakes involved. So we're going to take a short break now. When we come back, I want to ask Amy to talk about how those vested interests have deployed to rally anti-government sentiment. Um, And we're going to take your listener calls when we come back as well. So stand by for that. We'll be back in a minute. 
1-800-643-6273. Give a call and join Linda in the watering can for the drawing for Amy Goodman's uh, autograph copy of Amy Goodman's latest book, Democracy Now! 20 Years Covering the Movements, Changing America. We'll be doing that drawing at 5 o'clock tonight for everyone who's called in during the public affairs blocks this week on WERU. And we want to thank Ann Luther, who, along with a committee of people, which includes Linda Hoskins, Marge May, Pam Pearson, Leah Taylor, and Linda Washburn, put together this democracy forum. And John, whose uh, last name uh, she'll tell you when we turn it back over to Ann again, uh, has just joined their committee as well. They have been, for the last four election cycles, putting together these democracy forums. And uh, some of the topics that they cover are... are in just the last couple of months since they've been back for this election cycle include participatory democracy, moochers and freeloaders, welfare for the rich, welfare for the poor was the topic last month. Matt Murphy, what was the month before? Uh, the month before uh, was, let's see, um, ah, political equality, the founding vision, the modern reality. Um, nope, that was in that was in February. But in March, they did whose democracy is it? Wealth and income inequality, money and politics. So these are all really important topics. We're really grateful to have these folks here. They do a fantastic job. They keep things nonpartisan. They work in a committee. They bring in these guests and bring these important topics to our airwaves every time it's a presidential election season cycle. So we appreciate that. We know you do as well. If you support independent media, give us a call. 1-800-643-6273. Local news and public affairs uh, is a really important part of community radio and WERU. Uh, all kinds of programs that we have on in this time uh, on uh, Tuesday through Friday, they're worthy of your support. You can participate in the programs. They cover a wide variety of topics, and they are unique to WERU. 1-800-643-6273. Support all of this great programming. Right. League of Women Voters, Democracy Forum. It's important stuff. These are topics that we all need to be talking about. This is a community discussion that they're putting together every month. They're doing a fantastic job at it. We know you appreciate it. So give us a call. 1-800-643-6273. We're going to go ahead and turn it back over now to uh, the guests in the studio and uh, let them continue their program. 1-800-643-6273. Welcome back to the Democracy Forum. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters. At this point, I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. Our guests this morning are Colin Woodard, award-winning author and journalist, and Amy Freed, professor of political science at the University of Maine. Our topic today is Us Versus Them, Is Government the Enemy? If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378, or 469-0500 if you live locally. We have only one listener line open, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, please take your answer offline so that others can join the conversation. Um, Don't wait to the last minute. Get your call in early. Um, So we want to come back to that question, Amy, about um, harnessing anti-government sentiment for strategic intent and let you weigh in on that. Go ahead. Sure. I mean, I've been doing research on this for quite a while with um, another professor now at Loyola University in Maryland, Doug Harris. And what we've looked at is how uh, there, the, the among conservatives in particular, there have been these efforts to promote 
distrust in government for strategic reasons. And the, the, there's really four aspects of that. One is to try to promote it to, to win elections. A second is to develop and to maintain organizations. So if you have a, 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 um, an organization that, um, you know, would benefit by um, the promotion of distrust, like the, the Tea Party. Um, another is to try to promote the power of the institutions that you that you control or undermine the power of the institution that you don't control. And then another is to try to gain policy successes, often in defeating policies that one doesn't like. And, and, and um, you know, this certainly occurred both during Bill Clinton's administration and during the administration of Barack Obama with the policies around health care. Now, of course, there's different outcomes there because uh, the the, the health care policies under Bill Clinton's time, which Hillary Clinton was very much involved in developing, um, did not succeed, didn't get passed, uh, you know, at least the major reform effort, while um, Obama did manage to pass the Affordable Care Act um, while he had, you know, very, very large majorities in both houses. But, you know, if you look at the Affordable Care Act argument, there certainly was a big effort to ramp up distrust in government, and there was a, a, a very careful set of efforts from uh, people like Frank Luntz, who you may see from time to time on uh, Fox News with his different focus groups, where they did a lot of different research to sort of find the best words to um, you know, undermine the act and to, to tie it to government. Uh, government bureaucrats to talk about a government takeover of health care. Now, you know, for people who are really strong progressives and, you know, and, and people who are health policy scholars, you look at the Affordable Care Act, you don't see a government takeover of health care. You know, it's very far from a single payer. There wasn't even a public option. Um, you have a big role for insurance companies, even though, yes, there was a, initially an expansion of Medicaid in it, uh, but it's not, it's not a government takeover, you know, in, in any means. But going, going in and trying to, you know, find those kinds of words. And then you saw, uh, as a result of that and various organizational efforts, people showing up to these town meetings with uh, members of Congress and screaming at them that there was going to be rationing, that government bureaucrats were going to allow, you know, their disabled um, father or, or child to, you know, to, to be killed, essentially. Um, the Amy, death we've, panels. Got, we've got a caller on the line, so I'm going to take Yo. Um, are you there, Yo? Go ahead with your question or comment. Good morning. This is Yo in Tremont. Hello, Amy. Hi. It always amazes me how the oligarchy is given a pass when people presume the system is broken. Why is it war, disasters, and chaos are not seen as the intended outcome of policy? Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Thanks, Yo. Do you have a comment on that, Amy? Um, I'm not sure how to answer it. I mean, I think there, you know, there certainly are always reasons, as as I said and Colin said, to be skeptical about uh, what government does, and and there are times when, um, 
you know, things things happen that are that are extremely negative that deserve our distrust. I would just say, you know, let's look at the 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 balance of things and not let things get to the point that um, it's it's uh, people just are knocked out from participation. I mean, if people uh, and it's very important what people how people feel about things earlier in their lives because what kinds of level of participation and involvement people have when they're young is very much likely to carry through in in uh, years to come. This re- you know, there's research where you follow the same people over time, and if young people don't vote when they're young, <laughs> then they they're, they're less, vote later. Yeah. yeah, they're less likely to vote later. We, we've got another caller on the line. Go ahead, Pam. Hi. Good morning, and a nice, very nice to listen to this and to have uh, read your article. Amy, for the strategic promotion of distrust in government and the Tea Party age. Um, one thing that's occurred to me recently is the associate in Maine, the Association of Loggers and Contractors, how much they lobbied for the government intervention to save the biomass plants with a lot of money. $14.3 million is my memory. Yet, on the other hand, these same people are inspiring vast people showing up at the monument uh, forums <clears throat> to oppose the designation of the Quimby land as a national monument saying that it's a takeover of for the from the federal for the federal government so i'm thinking how much of this and you talk about it a little bit in your paper is ideology and how much of it is simple profit go ahead uh, one thing I'd say is Americans are not necessarily very consistent ideologically. And I'll take the answer offline. Thanks, Pam. <laughs> okay, thanks, Pam. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so people aren't necessarily consistent ideologically. There are some people who really are. But, you know, we, there's, you know, public opinion research going back to the 1940s that, that most people are interest-based. And and so you know if it looks good for them they'll they'll be positive towards it. If it's not, and you see this in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, for example, you'll you'll have um, a a call to decrease the power of the federal government um, in 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 many many cases from some people. But then when it comes to something that say like uh, tort reform, you know how much uh, people can sue. For when there's a medical problem, then often the same people or group or groups that su- say they support a smaller government want there to be a federal standard uh, because um, you know that that that's a case in which they they don't want to have a lot of um, accountability uh, possible um, from people bringing lawsuits. I think we have another caller on the air. Catherine, are you there? Go ahead. I would just like your, this is a little off the topic, but it's still on the government, um, your opinion on executive orders, because from the research that I've done, it was started by Roosevelt back in 1933, and I think part of the National War Powers Act, and which declares our country in a state of emergency, which allows these executive orders to be, to be done by a president who basically is taking on dictator, um, a dictatorship by doing this, and that from what I've read, 
every year that a president is in office, not a term, every year it is reinstated. And it just gives, I mean, when you look at the executive orders that, let's just say, Barack has done, they're deplorable. They are really scary. And it just, Congress just turns away and allows it. So I would love to know your opinion on that, because you obviously do the research also. Thank you. Bye. Go ahead, Amy. Okay, sure. Thanks. That's a great question. Um, I mean, executive orders have been around really since the very beginning of the republic. I mean, but certainly they have increased in uh, starting in the 20th century with FDR uh, being, you know, really striking in the number of executive orders that he did. And, you know, of course, he was in office a long time, but really per year, his rate was the highest rate. Um, There are ways, though, to restrict and control those, you know, as... Uh, the caller mentioned, you know, you you can have Congress overturn executive orders or many executive orders can be overturned. Whether they choose to do so is another story. They may have to get past a presidential veto, which is a high bar. But you also can bring lawsuits against executive orders in many cases. And there are plenty of times when executive orders do get overturned by lawsuits. Sometimes they don't. I mean, one uh, case I can think of is when the first President Bush was in office and he had an executive order that had to do with um, clinics that took federal funds, whether they could discuss abortion with clients. This wasn't even, you know, providing abortion, it was discussing. And he said, if you have any discussion, let's say Planned Parenthood, similar clinic, you cannot get any kind of federal funds. And there was a lawsuit against it. And the court in that case ruled that the president was within his executive power to to, to pass that. It was a kind of implementation uh, issue. And he, he could do that. But there are other cases in which executive orders do get overturned. Colin, do you have anything you want to add to the, th- the thread of this conversation right now? Well, I was dropped out of the conversation, so I didn't actually hear the question. So I think I'll, I'll stand down and let okay. me, take the time for a summary, and I'll, I'll join in uh, perspective. With well, you. I'm glad you're back. Um, listeners, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Colin Woodard, award-winning author and journalist, and Amy Freed, professor of political science at the University of Maine. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866 866- Six two five nine three seven eight or four six nine zero five zero zero. If you're calling locally, um, I, you know I'm interested in the question of whether governments, um, what you know, when government does a good job, we all love them. When government doesn't do such a good job or does something we don't like, we all start to not like them. I'm wondering if there's a way in which making government do a bad job or making government do nothing is itself a strategy to make people dislike government in order to get small government. I mean, is there that kind of self-fulfilling prophecy at work, Colin? Well, that precise thesis is uh, put forth by uh, 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 Thomas Frank, who did What's the Matter with Kansas. His uh, sequel to that book was called The Wrecking Crew, and he essentially does a book-length argument that that's what the uh, Republicans and the, uh, you know, five, six years ago when the book came out, that that was the strategy, that if you could um, impair, shrink, uh, paralyze, and defund various programs, those programs would do such a bad job that they would be further discredited and people would, uh, would you know, hate them for all of their failures and 
uh, want them to be cut even more. <laughs> so, so there is an argument out there that that can be done, um, and uh, and I imagine that there's uh, certainly at least a grain of truth to that. That uh, kind of organized with that principle, you can shrink shrink government, as Grover Norquist said, to the uh, a, a small enough size where you can drown it in the bathtub. What do you say, Amy? You know, I think there's probably some element of of truth in that. Um, I don't see that as uh, you know the uh, uh, the primary cause of this. I think you have all kinds of events that occur, as we've discussed. I think you have strategic elements to to all of this, and you know, there's also just a, a, a piece of distrust is who who's in office right then. I mean, there's a um, you know, this research going back to the, you know, when the 1960s when this issue really started to appear where people, political scientists asked, is it about government per se or is it about what they called the regime, which basically meant who's in charge, who's in power? And there's no doubt that, you know, when Democrats are in charge, Republicans trust in government goes down and, and vice versa. So some of it is 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 just simply... I don't like the people who are running things. Um, one uh, ad- addendum to that is right now nobody really likes the way Congress is running things. Right. You know, if you separate out the institutions, Congress is just really down there. Do you want to comment on that, Colin? I'm also interested in your view, especially in light of um, your recent article last week about whether this distrust of government um, is equally felt at federal, state, and local levels? Well, I mean, distrust in government, you know, there's a legitimate uh, concern as a general principle in being distrustful of government. You know, it can, if one is not, uh, you know, vigilant, governments throughout the world have assert powers and tyrannize their people. So it's, it's not that that's not a legitimate concern and one that uh, many people uh, have had to, um, you know, fight fight strongly in order to free themselves from tyrannical governments, it can happen. But it's all context-dependent. You know, if you live in a society where where the size of the government and, and the oppression of the government is indeed um, destroying individual liberties um, to a degree that outweighs any concerns about the government's ability to keep the, you know, the, the rule of law on the most powerful members of society and to uh, act as a, you know, a force to keep free markets free and to keep uh, the possibility of people at birth to achieve their potential, that, that the system is a bridge. I mean, those are all questions of where is your society at a particular point in time um, has a lot to do with the degree to which you need to be primarily concerned about the tyrannical potential of government or primarily concerned about the tyrannical potential of not having a strong government, because they're both, they're both key concerns. So absent a, a world war, which I think you both alluded to as having been a moment in time when there was a significant rallying around. And I think even in the Pew chart, there was a little uptick in trust in government around uh, 2001, uh, September 11th. You know, absent uh, existential threat like that, um, how do we go about rebuilding trust in government? I mean, it's kind of hard to see who would be taking on that role of building trust in government. In other words, if we grant that there are some groups who are ideologically working to build distrust in government, who's on the other side? Or is this sort of asymmetrical? Um, I don't know what. Is it asymmetrical? What do you think, Amy? 
Well, I, I do think there's some asymmetry there because there's no doubt that if you are more on the progressive side, you want government to work and you want to have public support and legitimacy for government programs, whether it's regulatory programs or, you know, different kinds of uh, services and, and such. Um, but I, 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 don't, it's, I don't know. It's, you know, to rebuild trust in government at this point, I think we're in a very difficult circumstance um it you know i because there is there there's such high level of distrust right now there's so much careful politics to promote distrust in government and you have people really so much more separated than they used to be when it comes to media intake whether it's through traditional media or social media that you really reinforce existing attitudes and we also have a, a time which uh, some political scientists called negative partisanship, where really, you know, a lot of what defines people is what they're against. So, you know, some, whether it's, you know, a Democrat who just will dislike anything that, you know, Republican will say just kind of more automatically or vice versa. Um, people, you know, there's, that's a larger part of people's attitudes, the more negative responses rather than what people are for. Um, and so I, I don't know. I think it, it's it, – I think it would be – It's we're in a difficult circumstance. I mean some of it, I, as I said earlier, I think comes down to the kind of civic education we have, which I think should just be much more realistic – and and probably much more participatory, like putting people in circumstances where they have to compromise with other people or they have to debate ideas. What do um, you think, Colin, about the, the symmetry or asymmetry of the um, strategic array on both sides of more government, good government, or government is bad, down government? Well, I think of it in terms of ideas, you know, and I spent the past couple of years while writing American Character, the new book, thinking about what what is the goal of government in the American context? What do we, as aggregate, as the American people, actually want? If you take the, um, you know, the, 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 the libertarian uh, uh, urges in, the, uh, in certain parts of the country, especially in greater Appalachia, you take the more communitarian-minded mindset of certain tiers of the country that have a strong... Uh, early influence of the period, and so on and so forth. What What is the, the balance point? Not what, you know, I would argue for, but what would be something where you could get consensus from the American people enough to form a supermajority that would allow us to move forward and, you know, govern and have a government, you know, do X, Y, and Z things and follow such and such values and actually have a broad base of people supporting it. And I think that is possible. It's about, you know, figuring out what you are comfortable with government doing on that spectrum of, uh, of you know, the strong involvement that would lead you towards social democracy of government trying to, uh, you know, Im improve and have uh, uh, substantial civic and social investments uh, through larger taxation, or do you, you know, the the impulse that government uh, would be meddlesome and destroy free enterprise and interfere in in uh, individuals' liberty and have tyrannical things going on with law enforcement or who knows what, you need to figure out what the balance is. And I, I, I do think there's a way to do it, and I've tried to articulate it in the book, as to what the balance would lie that I think you would have a supermajority around. Once you do that, once you can set up a set of ideas that are, in fact, broadly shared, that short-circuit the, the current conversation, and sort of uh, you, you have a possibility of moving things forward. The argument doesn't become, 
rebuilding trust in government as an abstract notion, but rebuilding trust in this set of principles, which we agree that, you know, are best accomplished through the government. Go ahead, Andy. I think there is a way to do that. Yeah, and in some ways that's very much consistent with what political scientists have known since about 1970, which is that people, if you ask them more, you know, abstractly, do you dislike regulation, they'll say, uh, you know, do you like or dislike regulation? Oh, yeah, I hate regulation. I don't like people being told what to do. But if you ask them about particular regulatory programs, they like them. And and the same goes with, uh, you know, government spending. People will say, oh, government spends too much, doesn't do enough. Congress. Uh, with you that. Hate Congress, but you love your congressman. Right. Exactly. Right. So, you know, there's this breakdown between the abstract and the particular, and people are much more supportive of a role of government when you talk about specific things. But in, you know, general terms, no. Colin, right. you were t- yeah. talking about the roadmap to the roadmap going forward, how we could actually bring some balance back to this. What would that look like? Well, broadly speaking, you know, I, I explored through history this, this, this struggle between uh, freedom defined as, you know, primarily as individual liberty and freedom defined in we're going to build a free community terms, right? Because those are, those are actually sort of at odds. If you believe that, uh, that the, the, the goal is individual freedom, then encumbrances on the individual are heading in the wrong direction. They're, they're unfree. Whereas if you're trying to build a free community, you know, the early Puritans thought, Hey, we're building a more perfect society. The problem is that individuals can go bad, so we need to check the, uh, uh-huh. the terrible avarice. You know, the, the Calvinist ethic, or the Calvinist worldview, was that humans were sort of corrupted, and unless you kept a good eye on them and kept them <laughs> disciplined, they would go off and do bad things. And the danger to freedom in the New England mind, historically, was that an individual would rise up and become a tyrant or an aristocrat of the sort that, you know, that people had fled, you know, England supposedly to get away from. So the danger lies with an individual rising up and become a tyrant. So to maintain a free community, you have to be vigilant and have uh, safeguards against individuals, you know, lording over everybody. Those are opposite approaches, right? So how do you square the two? And there's the answer, I think, broadly speaking, is that there is this strong ethos that goes all the way back to the beginning of the country where Americans want to have this dynamic society, you know, by in, in aggregate, we want to have this dynamic society where people can go out and to the best of their potential, you know, to teach, you know, in the workplace of, you know, ideas and, and business and, um, and may the best person win and may everybody get their fair shot at it. And, you know, if your idea wasn't as good as the other ones, then that person deserves to win it. That, that, that sort of, um, that, that free struggle and people want to have the ability to do that. But, they also want the struggle to be fair. They yep. don't want people cheating on it. Yep. They don't want, you know, they don't want free riders who are, you know, that this worry about um, that there are individuals who are just taking welfare and stealing from your pocketbook because they're lazy. You know, that's a strong concern that lots of people have. And also the concern that, they're, that the whole system is being rigged by enormously powerful people and corporations and, yep. and individuals can do absolutely anything and apparently are beyond the law. If they bring down the world economy, we'll receive a giant personal bonus and the millions of dollars paid for by who? Yes, indeed, the taxpayer. Again, right? People hate that. <laughs> Go ahead, Amy. I see you want to get, oh, get a word. Cheating. So what I'm saying is you need to have uh, people will support having a government that will that is playing the role of keeping the, 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 the marketplace free, but also keeping the social sphere free so that people, regardless of their birth and circumstances, have a shot at seeing their potential. And if you make that argument, 
from it follows investments like in public education and in universities and in highway systems and in libraries and in healthcare and all sorts of things that are the leveling functions so that your ability in America to rise on your own merits is not determined by your circumstances of your birth because you roll two or three generations down that struggle if you don't do that then power creeps in a few families and boom you have oligarchy and yep. options so so yes yeah, and people by we, and large there's broad support for that but thanks colin we are kind of running out of time here so i'm going to give amy the last word we've got just a minute left go ahead amy wrap it up for us well what i'd add is uh that we do live in a time when people are worried about government and government power as, you know, in some ways they always have. But we do certainly want government to provide certain things. And I, I think uh, there's a, a statement by Franklin Roosevelt on freedom where he said a necessitous man is not free. If you really are truly needy, then you don't have the ability to plan to uh, make progress in your life and, you know, to help your family change. And so, you know, ultimately for there to be security in many different ways, economic security, physical security, and to have opportunity, you have to have government do certain things. And people do want government to do those things. Uh, at You know, and, and, and again, then that's, you know, at the level of particular programs. But I think we've sort of forgotten that broad notion of freedom that Roosevelt talked about. We, you, you we are, we're running out of time. I guess we actually are out of time. So thank you to our guests this morning, Colin Woodard, award-winning author and journalist, and Amy Freed, professor of political science at the University of Maine. It was a great conversation. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Uh, Our website is lwvme.org. If you have a suggestion for a topic or guest on a future democracy forum or to join the league, email us at downeast at lwvme.org. Thanks again. We'll see you next month.